Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show, and watch your life grow. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, with another exciting edition of the Philippe Matthews Show. And as you all know, I uh, have a uh, propensity to uh, uh, enjoy surrounding myself with brilliant minds. And uh, we don't fall short today, uh, because today we have a a good friend uh, by the name of Dr. Brian King, uh, who is known uh, as the road psychologist. I uh, had the uh, privilege of, of, of meeting Dr. King uh, uh, a few months ago when he was conducting uh, a workshop uh, on habits. It was an eight-hour uh, or you know, almost an eight-hour. It was a full day, let's say that, of, 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 nothing, of nothing but how to break habits, how the brain forms habits, and it was fascinating, so much so that I, I uh, begged him and pleaded with him <laughs> to be on the show today. How are you, Doc? Oh, I'm good, Philippe. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. You are you are too kind and generous with the uh, with the, the praise there. Uh, uh, although the word brilliant, I think you should keep that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but definitely, uh, yeah, please feel free. Feel free to call me Brian. Uh, I've never been that comfortable with Dr. King, to be honest with you. No, it's, uh, it's kind of been taken, really. Yeah I, I, yeah, yeah, I kind of think so. Yeah, especially around uh, certain times of the year, say like February, I think people are real sensitive to the whole thing. Uh, uh, it's February. In February, I don't even like calling myself doctor. You know <laughs> right. Well, well, obviously you have a great sense of humor, and a lot of people don't know this, that not only are you a brilliant psychologist, but you're also a brilliant stand-up comic. Uh, yes. Yeah, it, it's it's funny cause the uh, the two the two careers they kind of go hand in hand. I will say. How ironic! Uh, exactly. <laughs> it really is. I do uh, I do travel the country uh, as uh, you know delivering seminars as you as you mentioned I am and I call myself a road psychologist that's sort of a a, a self proclaimed title there but it is it seems very fitting uh, it's like I, I I thought of, I used to call myself a stand up psychologist. 
but then, you know, I, sometimes I like to sit down. So a road psychologist feels a little bit better. <laughs> well, let, let's uh, go back in time a little bit and talk about where did this comedic genius come from uh, and uh, what was that story? And then, of course, uh, where did uh, the the uh, propensity for the for for you know psychology come from, and, and and why did you decide to go into psychology and and stand up? Where where did this begin? Well, let's say uh, I guess uh, you know I, I can't really pinpoint a beginning, but I will say that I uh, I've always humor is uh, is a defense mechanism. Uh, you know, it's Freudian, of course, would tell you that, and. Sure. Uh, and for whatever reason, and I don't remember, I, I didn't have a bad childhood. I, you know, my childhood was fine. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, I developed a sense of humor instead of developing, you know, some other skills. Like other kids were playing basketball or football to impress people. I, I would make jokes, you know. And so uh, that was the thing that I, that was the skill that I developed from a very early age. But related to uh, the sense of humor is a uh, an ability to identify and observe characteristics about human behavior and sort of comment on them. Uh, and so there's a, there's an element of psychology inherent in being a good stand-up comedian. Uh, you know, we have, to, we, have to be able, we have to be able to recognize, you know, the various behavioral quirks that people engage in uh, in order to make fun of them. And so I, I, so there there is some, uh, there's a, a degree of overlap, I guess, in the skill set there. Uh, now, I developed my sense of humor from a very early age, and I, 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 I you know, worked on that, or I became like a class clown and, and some, you know, throughout uh, my education, but I didn't actually uh, start to pursue comedy as a uh, as a means of, of uh, I don't know, livelihood, uh, and I have a hard time saying that without laughing, because it doesn't really provide that much that much uh, uh, money, <laughs> but uh, I didn't uh, I didn't start, start pursuing that until much later in life, and I actually started to think that, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to stand up comedy. Uh, always having the sense of humor, uh, for whatever reason, I've always had the interest to become a stand-up comic. But it was, I didn't. I, I became a psychologist first. Let's put it that way. And uh, I, uh, the, I guess the same things that motivated me to to get in to develop my sense of humor also motivated me, or at least motivated my interest in uh, in psychology. That is, like the understanding of human behavior, being able to observe and appreciate what I observe, being able to predict it. Uh, and just being able to better understand why people do the things that they do. Uh, that mm-hmm. really drove a lot of interest. And there's a practical side, too. Uh, my other interests that I had, I had lots of, you know, it, my, other, my interests are not limited to just psychology and comedy, but my other interests that I had, uh, far less lucrative, uh, far fewer job opportunities uh, post-graduation. So uh, the my my steering into psychology as a form of training uh, had a lot to do with evaluating well, am I going to make more money as an artist or as a psychologist? Uh, so, uh, a real practical decision drove me into that field uh, for study. Well, well that's uh, absolutely fascinating because um, uh, we also uh, share uh, similar interests in that uh, I know you like uh, hip-hop, you like vodka martinis and girls uh, uh, that wear skirts, uh, particularly like in the wintertime. Yeah, I love those things. Dude, that's amazing. <laughs> Who knew that those would be such common, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> activities? Now, I, uh, 
I do. I, I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy a good martini. That's for sure. And of course, uh, uh, I love the uh, the hip hop music. You know, with those kids today and their crazy music and their hairstyles and their baggy jeans. Loved all that. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I'm originally I'm originally from New York, uh, and, and uh, I I've always had sort of a uh, more of a, an urban sensibility to myself, you know. Uh, in fact, when I was uh, when I was in graduate school, or not actually postgraduate school, when I first got my doctorate, uh, a lot of my friends had nicknamed me just a little casual nickname, Doctor Ghetto. Uh, it was a uh, uh, <laughs> sort of a uh, sort of a nickname that. Uh, Drew from my, you know, my my love of uh, of all things kind of urban, and yet you know, the fact that I was just this walking uh, contradiction, you know, as an educated person that uh, throws the the street slang, you know, as I had my pants, I'm actually right now, my pants are below my ankles, if you know, uh, and that's just <laughs> Well, you know, here, here's the thing. It's like I, I, what a culture shock. Uh, you, you've been pretty much everywhere in the country, uh, and coming from New York, you now live in San Francisco. I mean, that's that's enough material right there. Oh, I love it. I San Francisco is my favorite city uh, by far. It is just fantastic. I mean, don't you now if any New Yorkers are going to listen to this, uh, I'm just kidding, of course. I don't mean that. Uh, New York. Uh, we all know we, you know. we all know who's best, you know. But no, San Francisco's fantastic, and I love it. Uh, and and the thing is, uh, it, it's 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 just every bit as historical and multicultural and interesting as New York City. It's just a little smaller, and uh, and it's got better weather. And so I think that uh, you know, it, it it is really to me like the West Coast New York. You know, I I, I totally agree I with do, that. Yeah, I do get a lot of enjoyment uh, living there. Uh, that said, I haven't been there in a while. As you know, I've been on tour, and uh, I was in San Francisco uh, early this year. I have since been all over the United States. I'm currently calling you. I'm actually in uh, New Jersey, outside of New York City. Oh, wow. Uh, and, okay. Uh, and another leg of my tour. So haven't been back, haven't been back home in about three months, and I'm starting to miss it. So hopefully it'll still be there in good shape when I get back. I'm sure it will. Well, you know, uh, like I said uh, earlier uh, when I was introducing you, I first came to know you by this workshop that you did uh, on uh, habits and how the brain forms habits and everything in between. And the research uh, that uh, was done by uh, uh, Dr. Noro uh, uh, Valco, uh, you took that research and just illuminated it and made it so plain and so real uh, that uh, it, it caused me uh, midstream in, in the uh, workshop to to ask you uh, about uh, you know how uh, does uh, the you know the habits uh, and uh, behavior how does that affect certain populations and environments and we're going to get into that later on but just for uh, the sake of, of of understanding what is your definition uh, of a habit. Oh, that's a good question. Well, I don't know if I have a, a unique definition here. I think it's a relatively read-upon definition in psychology is that a habit is just an automatic response. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, I think in, in common usage, we use the term habit to, describe, uh, to use it to describe a lot of things. Uh, but from a psychologist, uh, from our point of view, a habit is just a response that's been automated. And we, and by, by automated, I mean that, it's a response that our brain can engage 
without uh, using our conscious mind, without having any conscious input. Habits can be uh, behavioral, and there are lots of behavioral habits. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, you start biting your nails without thinking about it. You know, that's sort of a habit, right? Uh, you know, the uh, uh, you know, hey, and, you know, there are plenty of behavioral habits, but a habit can also be uh, an emotional response. Uh, you, you know, somebody says something that provokes uh, an anger reaction in us, That's uh, that anger reaction is actually a habit. It's something, it's a response that we've learned uh, to do without consciously thinking about it. Uh, we, also, we also can have uh, physiological responses that can be habituated and even cognitive habits. Uh, I actually have a, I have, a, I have a couple of stories that I tell that involve cognitive habits, but uh, you know, what, you know, basically what a cognitive habit is is a thought that just sort of pops into our head without, you know, that we don't really have uh, any conscious control over. Uh, mm-hmm. We just kind of have those thoughts that happen. So uh, when we use the term habit, we're really talking about a wide variety of human experiences and phenomena. You know, you know, just pretty much any response that a human being is capable of engaging, uh, if it's uh, under the right circumstances, can be habituated, can be learned, and can be turned into a habit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the work from Dr. Norris uh, Valker uh, was on, uh, I guess, new brain research uh, uh, as it relates to uh, drug addiction. So uh, could you explain uh, the correlation between habit and addiction? Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'd like to say that uh, from, uh, from her, her research now, uh, we have uh, this, and by we, I mean psychologists, not necessarily me and you, Philippe, but uh, sure. uh, we have, although I include you, you know, I include us, you know, there's no reason to exclude us in this, this discussion, but uh, psychologists for a very long time have uh, been aware of uh, the, the changes that take place in the brain when we experience, uh, you know, pleasurable events or uh, when we experience things that we might call rewarding. Uh, now, uh, I'm using the word reward here, but it's more uh, more accurate to use the term reinforcement. But right now, I just use the word re- rewarding is fine. But uh, we have uh, there, there are different chemicals in the brain that are released during the experience of something we might call rewarding. And one of those chemicals was dopamine. And so for the longest time, psychologists believed that dopamine was uh, a, a chemical associated with the and important to the experience of pleasure. Uh, Nora Valkov and her work has shown that uh, we actually don't see the dopamine release during the experience of pleasure, but rather in the anticipation of that potential reward. Uh, mm. So it actually sort of turns our view of this system pretty upside down uh, and, uh, in the past 10 years. Uh, for a very long time, you know, we, we had had a, a pretty strong relationship between the experience of dopamine and, and the association with the, the experience of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's been rethought. And so, uh, what, and, and the reason why it's been rethought, the reason why it's important is because for the longest time, uh, we had been, and, and by we, I mean just psychologists now, sorry, Philippe, but uh, okay. we have been, <laughs> we, we, we have been bringing subjects in the laboratories and exposing them to reward opportunities that they weren't expecting, right? So mm-hmm. we, 
Rick putting into a laboratory, monitor their, their brain activity, and uh, you know give them a, a you know piece of cake or uh, uh, some music to listen to or some other unexpected reward. And we saw that dopamine surge, and we thought that that dopamine surge indicated that they were experiencing pleasure. Well, what was really happening is that their brain was experiencing an unexpected reward, and that dopamine surge was a means to help trigger learning. They need to learn. Uh, we, what we do when we experience something that's unexpected, we learn from our environment and learn how to repeat that response. So if I uh, if I engage in a in a behavior that leads to an unexpected reward, I want to be able to repeat that in the future, and so I'm motivated to do so. And that's what that dopamine release actually represents. Because when we look at rewards that we expect, when we look at an expected reward, we see the release of dopamine during the anticipation. Uh, we, if I uh, witness the cues, for example, of a particular reward, I see, uh, and I used the example uh, in my seminar, you may remember this, I talked about donuts. Uh, of course. <laughs> I, love, I love donuts. And there's a particular brand of donut out there that I really enjoy. I don't know if you mind if I mention it. but it's, uh, Absolutely. Go for uh, it. I love it, too. Krispy Kreme donuts are fantastic. And the That's story right. that I use... The story that I use involves when I see the sign that says Krispy Kreme, uh, I, because I've learned the relationship between that sign and the donuts that I will then purchase, uh, when I see the sign for Krispy Kreme, I see a huge, there's a huge spike in dopamine activity in my brain. And I will go in, I will get those donuts, and, uh, and you know, if, the, if the, the reward that I receive matches my expectation, uh, then there's no further dopamine activity required. Uh, and that's what Norris has shown us, shown us that uh, we, when we expect the reward, uh, we see the dopamine surge during anticipation, not in uh, the actual consumption of the, you know, of the rewarding event. Now, how does this relate to the addiction stuff? Well, drugs, addictive substances, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, addictive substances all have a unique characteristic to them, and that is that they all increase dopamine activity in some way or another. They increase mm-hmm. the activity of this chemical, right? So uh, when, we can, when we experience a drug reward, you know, say, for example, I, you know, we, we take, you know, heroin or bath or whatever, uh, when we experience a drug reward, we see that surge of dopamine. Uh, we see that surge of dopamine in the anticipation of that rewarding event. The problem is, is that uh, the... At the anticipation, we, we, we get the dopamine from the anticipation, but because of the pharmacological effects of the drug, because the drug increases dopamine activity, we see additional dopamine activity after we consume the drug. And that, mm. additional, that additional dopamine activity is, is, is essentially tricking our brain into thinking it got a bigger reward than we anticipated. And as a result, then, the next time we encounter the opportunity to use that drug, uh, we estimate, you know, a greater potential reward from that experience. And we, again, are tricking our brain into thinking it got more reward than it did, and, and so on. So every time we end up using a drug, the next time we're going to value that response even higher and be more motivated to engage in the response. So this is uh, fantastic information because... Uh uh, most people uh, have a, a thought that uh, people who are addicted uh, to substance abuse uh, are bad people or, or people that have no self-control. When in actuality, I mean, we're looking at, uh, you know, talking about just the late 
uh, and great Whitney Houston. Uh, this was a function of her brain uh, that uh, she did not know how to turn off and how to control. Exactly. Now, I don't want to say it's completely outside the realm of self-control because uh, we do have, you know, control, especially in the, in the early stages. You know, we choose to engage that response. But after a while, after we allow this system to take place, uh, eventually the behavior becomes something that really doesn't look very voluntary. Uh, you know, the uh, because of this process of the drug, uh, increasing dopamine activity and tricking our brain, constantly tricking mm -hmm. our brain to increase the uh, uh, the reward, the potential benefit that we expect from that response. Uh, we ultimately end up engaging in behavior that's not very voluntary at all. So it might start out as a choice. It might you know it might start out as as you know behavior that we have some control over. But when it develops into something we call an addiction. Uh, it really is a behavior that we have very little control over. We have a very difficult time uh, kicking out of that particular cycle of behavior. You know, it's interesting that you, you say that because I remember hearing uh, interviews, one with Natalie Cole and uh, one with Elder Barr, who just recently uh, uh, had a relapse, and both of them in their interviews said that uh, the first time, uh, and this, is, of course, is different for, for different people, but the first time that they made the choice to try cocaine, uh, they knew right then and there that they were going to have a problem, but they couldn't stop yeah. it because the, the release was just – and then there are others who I know who have tried it and they got sick and it was a horrible experience and they never did it again. So this really is a neurobiological uh, throw of the dice, uh, in a sense. Would you would you agree with that? I, I would. There are things that could predict our propensity, but I would say that it's kind of just uh, we don't. From an individual point of view, uh, we're not going to know how susceptible we are until we try it. Uh, there are individual differences in our ability to uh, perceive rewards. Uh, I myself. I'm glad this is radio, Philippe, because if you people were looking at me, they would see I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, Not as big as me, guys. This is radio. I can I can tell all your listeners that I'm 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 a, I'm a nice, lean, buff, uh, six foot two. You know, I'm a very attractive man. No problem. Uh, but uh, the fact is, no, I am I am I am overweight. And uh, uh, the I, I I experience a lot of reward value from food. Uh, I'm uh, I'm some you know I don't know if it's if it's uh, you know my taste buds are a little bit more sensitive or if areas of my brain are a little bit more responsive to, to that food reward. But there are a lot of people out there who don't get the same reward value from food. Uh, there are a lot of people who you know who, who are, are less motivated to eat or it doesn't uh, provide them with as much perceived benefit. There's individual differences in our ability to uh, experience rewards. Some people will take a hit of marijuana and think it's the best thing ever. Some people will take that same drug and, you know, be not be not very interested. So uh, the mechanisms behind our individual differences to experience reward are going to vary uh, depending on the substance, you know, and they're going to vary. There, there's a lot of things going on there. So uh, to some level, that's hard to predict. It's hard to predict who's going to really love, you know, a, a, an awesome steak and who's mm -hmm. going to be like, eh, whatever, I'll just get a hamburger, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. It, 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 it's fascinating that it's, uh, you know, that dynamic, that volatile. Yeah. 
But I will say this, there are conditions that are predictive of a greater potential uh, for uh, engaging in that type of behavior. Uh, there, we know uh, there, there's, this is, and this probably is, uh, I don't know, this probably doesn't have much relevance to Whitney as she was a, uh, a, a superstar and very wealthy and a celebrity. I believe she was, I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't know when her drug use started, but I believe she started using drugs after fame. Uh, but, uh, as a, uh, uh, we, 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 we do know that, uh, when we're, when we're depleted or restricted of opportunities for reward in our environment, uh, that creates a condition we call dopamine deficiency. And when we have, uh, dopamine deficiency in, uh, in very brief terms, uh, drives us to engage in behavior, uh, where, where it drives us to seek out highly rewarding experiences. And so whatever that reward might be, uh, so a dopamine deficient individual uh, who has some experience with a food reward might develop a disorder of compulsive overeating, develop, become obese. A dopamine deficient person who has some experience with a drug reward might develop a drug problem, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, so there is a, uh, there's a genetic predisposition to this dopamine deficiency uh, in the form of there's a gene uh, that, you know, promotes it. So there's, there, there's one possible uh, avenue that might be predictive of who's going to be more susceptible to develop a compulsive disorder over another person. Well, you know, are, funny uh, you, I'm sorry, go ahead, Doc. No, please. Uh, well, right, well, you know, when we're talking about um, uh, uh, dopamine uh, deficiency, uh, you know, stress uh, is uh, a trigger, would you agree, to to uh, seek reward when we're looking at someone like, say, you know, a superstar or, or a Whitney Houston. Uh, success at that level Absolutely. is stressful. Absolutely. Let me, stress is an interesting concept because stress, the, the effect that stress has on our habits, really, is that stress makes us more likely to engage in our uh, our bad habits, so specifically, not necessarily a bad habits, but our, our habits that provide us with the most benefit. And very often, it's our bad habits that provide us with that benefit. You know, the overeating, the drinking, the drug use, etc. Those are those are very rewarding behaviors that we engage in. And so, when we're under stress, we prioritize anything that provides us with an extreme amount of reward. Uh, the reason for that is because. Our habits, essentially, from a very basic point of view, I'm using very simplistic language to describe them, our habits are responses that we've learned that make life better, right? That's what they, that's, that's the whole reason we've learned them. Because mm -hmm. in the past, in the past, when we've engaged that response, it made life better for us. And so we want to do that response again. That brings me back to the, 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 the concept of reinforcement. Reinforcement mm -hmm. is when life is better. So a habit is just a response that makes life better. Well, being stressed is a, uh, is a, is to put it in very simple terms, is an extreme need to make life better. Uh, we have a, uh, we have a, you know, when we're under stress, our body thinks that we're under attack. Our body thinks that we're in some form of danger. And that prevents, that, that presents a very, extreme need for us to sort of make life better, to use the same terminology, mm -hmm. and promote any behavior that we previously have experience with that provided us with that sufficient amount of benefit. So when we're under stress, like when I'm under stress, I'm going to grab a candy bar, 
You know, when someone else is under stress, they might grab a drink. You know, they might grab a, a bottle. Uh, someone else is under stress, they might reach for, you know, the, the vial of crack. Uh, so uh, stress promotes the usage of any of our habits that have previously provided us with some form of significant benefit. Now, you're bringing up a really great point here uh, and uh, offering some great insight because uh, what you just said, uh, you know, some people go for the candy bar, for the drink, or for the drug. Uh, because we are seeking stress-relieving uh, uh, activities, uh, it, it is also, uh, would you say, uh, uh, part of uh, or influenced by our environment that we're in at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that. So, uh, so for instance, I'll give, a, I'll give an example. So, you know, the kid who uh, or the young adult who was born and raised in poverty, that environment will cause them to, to that will create stress, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, not knowing if you're going to get shot or killed. That's going to trigger stress, but also, Let's say that kid grows up and becomes, you know, world-renowned, famous, whatever, very successful and financially empowered. Uh, there is a level of stress that comes within maintaining that. Uh, but yep. it's the same brain trigger. Absolutely. And I, I'd like to say uh, poverty has it's going to have a lot of uh, consequences on our habit expression. Uh, not only is there stress, and the, and the stress associated with poverty uh, is very, uh, it's definitely a contributor. Uh, we see, uh, and you know, I, I don't know if everyone listening is going to be familiar with this, but uh, all the disorders uh, that involve overusing our habits, uh, things like, you know, uh, overeating, over, you know, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, all those types of disorders are all much more prevalent in people that come from uh, uh, an impoverished background versus a more affluent background. Uh, uh, definitely rich people, you know, develop those disorders too, but they, de they develop them at uh, a much smaller percentage, you know, as, as a percentage of the, the rich, the affluent population, uh, fewer of them develop these types of disorders. These disorders are much more prevalent than people from impoverished backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Part of that mm -hmm. is the stress. Uh, poverty, as you mentioned, is a, it creates a condition of stress. And, of course, as, as, we, as I talked about, stress promotes the use of our bad habits. So, uh, yeah, you could you could develop, you could try, you know, uh, you could develop a habit of eating cho excessive chocolate cake or smoking excessive amounts of marijuana or whatever, uh, but uh, at any, uh, you know, socioeconomic status. But if you are uh, in the, from the, you know, the, the lower form uh, levels of socioeconomic status, it's going to be more likely to engage that behavior more often, and as a result of that more frequent engagement with the behavior, more likely for that behavior to turn into a disorder. Uh, there is one other contributor here, and I, and I started to go into this when I was talking about Whitney Houston, but then I, but then I, I switched gears midstream. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was talking about reward deficiency. Uh, well. Reward deficiency, uh, or as I talked about earlier, dopamine deficiency. Uh, reward deficiency is a state of mind that we enter into when there's a lack of opportunities to make our life better. Uh, as I mm. mentioned, you know, habits are ways to make our life better. And uh, essentially, poverty is an extreme lack of opportunities. Uh, affluence, on the other hand, is a, an abundance of opportunities. So we have both the stress of the poverty environment and the lack of reward opportunities 
both of those things combined promote uh, the usage of those behaviors and result in a greater prevalence of developing those types of disorders. Wow, that's incredible. So, so where does uh, the, um, I guess, the, the, the psychosis of learned helplessness come into this uh, language or come into this uh, uh, conversation? Well, learned helplessness is uh, is really is, is an animal. It's, it's, this actually comes from animal models of stress. Uh, when you know, and, and you know, it, we only do these types of research in animals because it would be completely unethical uh, to stress a human being to the point of learned helplessness. Uh, there's no you know a, a, a institutional review board that would allow such a, such research to occur. You know, despite what movies might tell you, we do have ethics. <laughs> but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, learned helplessness is a condition where if we continuously stress an animal. Uh, and, and I don't want to make it sound like we're, psychologists are doing this all the time. You know, we do we did it so that we can learn it, and, we, and we're not sitting around just playing with animals and uh, you know trying to you know do bad things to them. That's not what psychologists are about. But when we, if we continuously stress an animal uh, and they have no relief from that stress, uh, like they learn, they they basically they nothing they do will help to alleviate that stressful condition. They will eventually stop trying. They will stop trying to change their uh, their environment. They'll stop trying to relieve their stress, and we call that learned helplessness because they have learned uh, through the process of stress exposure that nothing they do will change their situation. So they stop trying. That's learned helplessness is also a model of human depression. Uh, it's basically what happens when people become depressed. They they stop trying to change their situation. This is amazing because obviously uh, uh, we see this prevalent uh, in uh, impoverished uh, communities, people who come from uh, uh, gang-infested environments, uh, unsafe environments, uh, even bad relationships, uh, domestic violence. Uh, all of those are, are stressors that trigger uh, and can trigger the uh, learned helplessness. Um, Actually, and depression is also one of those disorders that I mentioned earlier well, I, I, that is much more prevalent in impoverished uh, uh, you know, communities or impoverished uh, people from impoverished backgrounds. Now, there was, uh, and, I, and I'm looking for it here in my, uh, uh, in my notes, uh, there is, uh, what I loved about that workshop that you offered is that there, uh, you, you also talked about certain parts of the brain uh, that, um, uh, these, uh, uh, you know, the dopamine and and the reward centers, uh, where these areas are are, are triggered. Uh, but um, there was one that that struck me in particular, uh, which was called the uh, uh, dorsal lateral uh, 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 prefrontal cortex, or the uh, I'm sorry, the VM uh, PFC. Uh, there's a part of the brain where uh, if uh, after a certain amount of stress that occurs, it begins to weaken, and all of a sudden you just stop, or it stops creating strategies to better your life or to get yourself out of the situation. Is that correct? Uh, kind of. It's a uh, uh, basically what you're referring to is uh, the our ability to activate uh, an area in our brain, uh, and you are uh, the dorsal the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, but uh, when we activate that brain, that excuse me, that part of our brain, uh, it turns off our stress response. 
Now, the activation of that area of the brain is, uh, is it's, it's a conscious mechanism, so it's, it, there's a subjective experience to it. Uh, activation of that part of the brain is associated with a strong sense of control. Uh, so if we feel, if we have a, a strong sense that we are in control of our lives, then what that essentially allows us to do is eliminate the effects of stress from our lives. When we have a well-developed sense of control, when we have uh, uh, a, you know, a, a strong sense of control, uh, we, we basically activate this, this circuitry that allows us to shut off our stress response. Mm. And we, re- we relieve ourselves from all the effects of stress. So uh, another term that you used in the uh, workshop then was called secondary gain. How does that play a part? The secondary gain is an interesting concept. Uh, secondary gain is, uh, as, as I mentioned previously, uh, there are lots of things that uh, are rewarding to us. Uh, you know, we we threw out some examples there. You know, I like the, I like you know food reward. I like, uh, you know, there are other people who like alcohol. You know, Whitney, of course, had her uh, rewards that she found in her environment. But uh, there are. There are lots of things out there that have an intrinsic reward value to them, that things that we don't have to learn to be rewarded by. Uh, very often, we will experience that reward, and something in our environment will provide us with a secondary or bonus reward. Uh, mm-hmm. example, example I like to use is that, you know, eating, for me, has a great reward. Eating, for most people, is a very rewarding experience. If you eat, if you eat, in the company of other people, uh, you know that that feeling of acceptance, that conformity, that uh, those additional the enjoyment, the social interactions that we experience, that's a form of secondary gain, and that makes the, the eating behavior uh, much more likely to, to be repeated. Because it, it, what, what we've now done you know, is I've taken behavior that has a normal reward value to it, and I've made it a lot more rewarding by receiving this additional gain, this additional secondary gain. Oh, this is amazing. This is how gang, act, you know, why, why kids will go into a gang because they're socially accepted, uh, and so that becomes a secondary gain for them and so on and so forth, and then there goes the, there goes the life. Uh, not only not only for uh, you know for gang acceptance, but also just for uh, you know the, the drug use and for you know everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, sure. You know these secondary gain, of course, is a uh, is a is something that would help uh, you know motivate continued use of these these particular substances have or these sources of rewards. Um, so here's what I want to do because I know your time is limited. Uh, I want to uh, have you come back on the show. And okay. let's talk more about this and talk about some solutions and how the brain uh, can overwrite uh, the code of learned helplessness uh, uh, and, and uh, stress and how we can begin to uh, retrain our brain. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, let the people know how they can get in contact with you. What is your web address? Uh, sure. My, actually, it's funny. My my internet address is primarily focused for my comedy work, uh, and it is Dr. Brian King, all one word. dot com. So that's D R B R I A N K I N G. dot com. Uh, what I find intriguing 
is that uh, as I've been traveling as the so-called road psychologist that we've been talking about, uh, most of the traffic coming to my website is for people is, is from people looking for information on psychology and on habit training and habit formation. Uh, so I think I may actually have to put some of that on my website. Uh, right, <laughs> yeah, now, <you> <laughs> right, right now, my website is just uh, really focused on my uh, comedic material. But uh, yeah, if you want to hear, if you want to see me do a few jokes or a funny rap song, you know, go ahead and check out drbryanking.com. If you're interested in following up with this material or any others, uh, you can also contact me through my website as well. Fantastic. Well, we're definitely going to have you come back. I appreciate you so much for taking time out of your, your road psychology uh, psychologist schedule because uh, you're literally sitting by the side of the road talking to me right now. I'm, I'm, literally, I'm literally sitting in my car uh, right somewhere in New Jersey pulled over by the road. <laughs> with, with, your, with your pants hanging down by your legs, too. Don't forget that. That's right. They keep falling. They keep falling. As soon as we hang up, I'm going to be bumping the Wu-Tang all all the way back. All right, my brother from another mother. uh, That's right. (laughs) I totally, totally appreciate you. I so thank you for your graciousness. Uh, Let's have you come back and let's uh, kind of uh, continue this conversation. Because uh, it's absolutely fascinating uh, our our human brain and breaking it down and understanding how it works. So so with that, thank you so much, uh, and we'll talk soon. Awesome, thank you very much, Philippe. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. You got it, my friend. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye bye. All righty, bye bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.